Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. This is the second episode in our Great Sea Fights, the Battle of St. Vincent special. The first episode explored the outline of the battle and included two readings of primary sources from sailors who were actually there and witnessed those most remarkable events firsthand. Today, we're going to hear from two world-renowned Nelson scholars and biographers, John Sugden and Marianne Chisnick, who will cast their eyes over the battle to explore its influence on the war and, in particular, its influence on the life of the battle's great hero, Horatio Nelson. First up, here's John Sugden, whose two-volume Life of Nelson, A Dream of Glory and The Sword of Albion, has been described as the most comprehensive and intimate life of Nelson ever written. John is famous for exploring Nelson's famous victories, such as the battles of the Nile, Copenhagen and Trafalgar, as well as his lesser known but equally gripping campaigns. He's also explored the man behind the military prowess, a man riven with paradoxes and schisms, the fighting admiral and the glory hunter, the national hero and the indigent commoner, the family man and the adulterer. John is a deeply knowledgeable man and also extremely entertaining. I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Here's John. Hi, John. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Uh, that's great, Sam. Look forward to it. <laughs> um, how do we know about St Vincent? I mean, as a historian, what sources can we look at? Well, you can, uh, from the British side, sadly, the, the Spanish side hasn't been fully researched. From the British side, you obviously go to the logbooks of the uh, ships that were involved, and you also go to the Admiralty files. And surprisingly, there are quite a few other occasional accounts from participants, but they're widely scattered. They're not in any one place, so you just have to take your choice and search. I personally think that the real treasure trove is the Spanish archives, and nobody has really investigated them. Yeah, there's much more to come from there, isn't there? I mean, and looking at the log, I particularly enjoy looking at logbooks. I remember when I was doing my PhD and I, I, I 
just as an experiment, I went to the National Archives and I got out the log of the victory and I sat and I read it. Is there a, is there a particular um, historical source for naval battles that you enjoy reading more than any other? Uh, no, not particularly. As long as they're giving me any information, I don't care, care what they are. I like the personal letters myself because sometimes they, they go beyond the formalities of the documentation. Uh, even the dispatches are often quite formal and cold, uh, whereas the personal recollections of, of the participants, I, I find, are, are often more informal, informing. Yeah. And when you're writing about a battle like this, um, I think St Vincent really comes to mind because there are several um, well-known or unsupported stories in the narrative of the action. How do you deal with those as a historian? I'm particularly thinking of the one when Jarvis is standing there and he uh, supposedly gets covered in the brains of someone else <laughs> and then has an orange. Um, yes. <laughs> is, is St Vincent unusually... Are there an unusual amount of these kind of stories with this battle? Not an unusual amount. It was a famous battle, probably more famous than it actually deserves to be. But um, I think you're dealing with this sort of material in most of the battles of that period. A lot of it comes out a lot. You know, this was a period when books were beginning to be published and, and, and when important figures died, you found these huge monuments being published in their honour. And many of them were based on reminiscences, but many of them are also very unreliable. And a lot of these stories come from these sort of books. And then you get things like the, the contemporary naval journals, like the Naval Chronicle, which is a huge 40-volume set covering virtually every aspect of the naval situation between about 1818 um, and earlier than that. So, you, you know, the, there is a, an awful lot of stuff, but a lot of it is reminiscent, and reminiscent stuff is never particularly very trustworthy, as you'll know. Yeah, absolutely. It's, People um... build up the legends as they go along. <laughs> Yeah, yes, and I think it's dangerous, certainly with St Vincent. You, you often, it, it's so easy to read into the battle the narratives you're sort of supposed to read in once you know about what Nelson did next. It's quite difficult to put yourself in the in the shoes of the people who didn't know what was going to happen with the rest of the war or certainly oh, with exactly. Nelson's history. Yes, we, we come with the knowledge of hindsight, don't we? So we can, we can make criticisms which just wouldn't have occurred to people actually on the ground yeah. because they don't know what's going to happen. And they don't exactly know what's going to be the result of the actions that they're performing. So uh, it, it's very easy for historians to get very clever about events and take themselves out of the out of the situation. And I think you've always got to imagine just what what situation these what circumstances these people were in and trying to understand them a little bit. Yeah, be a bit more generous, perhaps. That's a nice, nice thought. Um, let's put ourselves in Jarvis's shoes. What what was what were his tactics? What was he trying to do when he saw the Spanish on the horizon? Well, one of the things he was very conscious of was the, was the, the dire start, uh, state of, of, the, of Britain at that time. He knew that uh, Britain was in, a, in, in dark and dangerous times. It was isolated in its struggle with revolutionary France. It didn't have any effective allies. His first army had been wasted by disease, capturing Sugar Islands in the West Indies. Its fleet was outnumbered by combined hostile navies of France, Spain and Holland. And the French, uh, with their superior armed forces, were threatening invasion. They did actually land in Wales and Ireland. And Britain was in an economic crisis with a run on the banks. Now, 
Jervis was the sort of man who knew that Britain really needed a victory. He was a brisk-for-business sea dog. He knew that Britain needed a victory at this time and he was going to do his damnedest to provide one. So I think that was what was most going through his mind when he confronted the fleets. Yeah. Um, it was very important to try and split up the enemy's fleet or to, to take advantage of a pre-existing gap in an enemy's line of battle. Yeah. Could you just talk a little bit about that and explain why? Yeah, well, obviously, uh, particularly in this case, because when on that morning of 14 February uh, 1797, when, when the fog lifted, revealing the, the various sizes of the fleets, Jervis would have been very much in, in, impressed by, by the sheer formidable appearance that the Spanish fleet made. So it was even more important to try and split and divide it so that he could concentrate such forces as he had on one division of the Spanish fleet. And that gift was given to him because as the fog lifted, he realised that there was already a gap in the Spanish uh, order and he, he really went straight for that. He, he, uh, he headed straight for it with the intention of of, of driving a wedge through the Spanish fleet and then rounding on the larger part of it and, and, and mopping it up uh, with, with, by concentrating his entire force upon it. So it was obviously an important situation for him. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Nelson wearing out of line, so you've got the you've got the the vanguard of the British fleet tacking, and then Nelson sees what's going on. He wears out of line. How much initiative did he take, or or how much was his actions actually based on pre-existing ideas already shared by Jarvis? Well, that's difficult to say. They did work together quite well, and I'm pretty sure they both knew. Uh, what they were trying to do. They were both aiming in the singing from the same sheet, as it were. But, you know, there are all sorts of, of arguments about this, and the, the evidence is very contradictory about why Nelson played the part that he did. Um, it depends, really. The, the authors often take a different stance, and it's, it just depends which piece of evidence you believe. I think there are two or three scenarios which are possibly possible. But uh, Nelson was um, in a rather unusual situation. He was at the rear of, of the fleet. He was, he was uh, a third from the end of the fleet, so he was in the rear guard. And that was a particularly galling uh, place to be on that day because um, I don't know whether you, you've, you've described this already, yeah. but you'll know that the, the British fleet, if you gave a bird's-eye view of it, was like a distorted U-shape. Yeah. With, uh, with with the, the Spanish and the British van heading northwards, and the rear of the British fleet heading south southwest in the other direction, and uh, I can imagine that Nelson seeing the enemy looking across to starboard, he was in the in the rear rear division of the, of the English fleet. And I can imagine him looking to starboard and seeing his enemy passing northwards on the opposite tack must have been uh, one of the most difficult periods of his life because he was committed to heading southwesterly <laughs> when, when the whole battle was drifting northwesterly. And uh, it must have been like a red rag to a bull to him. So I don't think he needed a lot of an incentive <laughs> to break <laughs> ranks and go for it. Yeah. You know, Nelson once talked about the happy moment. He said most people 
Most naval officers never had the good fortune to be in, in a naval action, a, a major fleet action. So when the opportunity came, you grab it, you, you grab it with both hands. And I can't imagine him doing much else on this occasion. Yeah. So uh, it, I think it was understandable. Yeah, very much so. And I, I suppose one of the things that I think is overlooked is the when Nelson he wears and he he attacks the Spanish. It's the it's the mismatch between the size of his ships and the ones that he captures, which I think is often overlooked and maybe perhaps too much focus on him using the initiative or demonstrating his leadership skills. I mean, he went into battle against a enormously larger opponent. He did. And several larger opponents, because he actually engaged five or six ships. And these included the Santissima Trinidad, which uh, was one of, was the uh, enemy flagship, a 130-gun, four-decked warship that was once reckoned to be the biggest warship in the world. He, get, he did some great damage to that. And he finally found himself facing three other ships, uh, all of which were technically superior to his own. Except when you consider another factor, which is not just the size of the ship uh, and even the number of guns it has, but basically the real power in a ship is the skill uh, and, and experience of the gunners. And that's what really Nelson was relying upon. I mean, it's been estimated, for example, in, that in those three hours that he was engaging the, the, the heart of the Spanish fleet, his ship expend, expended nearly 2,800 shot and 146 barrels of gunpowder and was firing a lethal broadside about every four and a half minutes. Well, this is going to take some beating by any ship of any size. Yeah, and, they, and I suppose the key point is that British know that the Spaniards are poorly manned, that, there is, that they've got a good sense of the state of they the do. Spanish fleet. Yeah. And so did the Spaniards. <laughs> they were very aware of their inadequacies too. I mean, they knew their ships were ill-supplied. They were, they were not fully manned. They knew their gunnery wasn't as efficient. Um, they, they, they really, by this time, after many engagements with, with the British, often in single ship actions, they were beginning to get the, the message that... Uh, this was not something that they would really have liked to have done. Um, that's not to say that the Spanish fleet wasn't very brave. It was capable of... Um, some, of the, some of the Spanish officers behaved very gallantly indeed. They just didn't have the tools and the experience to perform. Yeah, couldn't couldn't really fight them off. Nelson's boarding um, of the two Spanish ships is obviously an interesting moment. But there's something I discovered recently. I know he was injured during the battle. He gets hit by a block yeah. and he gets hit in the stomach. But and later yeah. on, it produces a, a hernia. It's actually a, a he describes it as a fist sized yeah. hernia. So this is not yeah. a tri. It's not a trifling injury. However, that's no. exactly the word he uses to describe it. He says it's trifling. But this happens before. He, he boards. He boards. So yes, I know. Unbelievable. It, it is. It, it, the, whole, the whole thing, the whole battle really is, is a real cocktail of Nelson's qualities, isn't it? Right from beginning to, to the end. You've, you've got the way he reads a battle as it's happening. He's not just watching it, he's reading it and understanding what's happening. He's got the tactical insight to do that. He's got the moral courage to take action on his own hook, whatever anyone else says, and then to defend it afterwards. 
And here you see him uh, doing the other thing, the great sort of uh, lead from the fl- lead from the front fighting. And it wasn't his business because commodores and flag officers normally left that to uh, their captains. And, and Nelson says to Miller, who is his flag captain, uh, "Stand aside, I'll take this one." And that's after his, as you say, it's after he's received this blow. Yeah. The other thing about the boarding actions is this. Although the Spaniards weren't particularly, um, uh, they, they weren't necessarily experienced uh, greatly in, in, in sea battles or gunnery, when you're actually in a boarding situation, that doesn't really matter. These people can still uh, handle pikes and swords and pistols. And some of these big Spanish ships had quite a large numbers of men, so it was quite a brave decision, I think, for Nelson to 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 do that uh, that exercise, boarding first one one ship, and then having done that, and having to commit men to holding that in in its place, boarding another ship from it again with a, a quite unknown quantity on the other side. It it was incredible bravery, however way you look at it. It was just. It was naval heroism at its best, and that, I think, was one of the great reasons why uh, it, it became such a legendary episode. Yeah, so much focus falls on Nelson, but Collingwood plays an important role in this as well. He's in command of HMS Excellent, and, um, you know, reading it again as I was today, it does, I think, foreshadow the, the, you know, the relationship between Nelson and Collingwood that you see played out at the Battle of Trafalgar as well. Yes, it does. Isn't it strange that the two leaders of Trafalgar were both in the rear division of the of Jervis's fleet and could, if things had gone wrong, have missed the action completely? Yeah, they they worked in great in great uh, uh, unison those two. And remember, they'd had a history together because they'd they'd been in partnership before, going back as young officers. They'd both fought uh, the navigation laws in the West Indies together. Uh, and uh, they were almost the only two significant officers who had done that. So they came with a history of collaboration and friendship, and uh, Collingwood does play an amazing part in this battle. He gets into it a bit late compared to Nelson. He didn't have Nelson's insight, tactical insight and initiative, but when he gets there, he really does his job, and in fact... He uh, he brought about the surrender, really, of two of the Spanish ships, which is an uh, equal to Nelson, not perhaps in as dramatic a fashion. And you also find him in the battle actually passing between Nelson's ship at one point and the ships that Nelson's, Nelson was engaging, partly, of course, to deliver broadsides into Nelson's opponents, but also one suspects to give Nelson's ship a respite and a, a, a few minutes breather uh, while, while, um, while he deals with the enemy, and then he passes on and, and Nelson resumes the conflict with them. So they did work really well as a team, and that continued to Trafalgar, of course, as you say. Yeah. And Colling was one of these people, I think he joined the Navy when he was eight or something. He spent his entire yes. life in the Navy and um, finally gets his chance to, to get stuck in and certainly does so. Um, the, the fame is interesting. What happens to Nelson and the impact on his private life? Do you think it's fair to say that Nelson and Fanny, his wife, dreamt of different futures? Yes, I 
I think so. I think she was proud of him, but uh, her response to this battle was uh, leave boarding to captains. <laughs> she didn't like him putting himself in danger. Well, it's understandable. It's like policemen's wives today, isn't it? So it's not a, not a difficult idea to to, to recognise. But yes, yeah, she didn't. She she obviously was very proud of him, but she didn't have that talent for uh, exulting in, in his naval glory in the way that Emma Hamilton did later. Um, I think Fanny would have liked uh, a respectable professional life and then a quiet retirement uh, by the fireside and a, and a nice family, family context. Um, she, wasn't, she wasn't an adventurous person, but she was solid and dependable and, and honourable. And in a way, Nelson wanted something more exciting. Yeah, yeah, he certainly got that. Didn't he? Like, he did get it. He <laughs> too much. Um, and it's a good point, is you know. So there's, um, it's a point that I think is needs making a lot with sea power in this period. So the British here have have defeated uh, the Spanish. They've kind of found them out. They've proved to themselves that the Spanish can be defeated. So at this stage of the war, they've beaten the French at the glorious 1st of June. They've now beaten the Spanish. But in, in no way does that signal the end of the war. There's so much more coming, isn't it? The Dutch are about to change sides. It's all going to go wrong. Yeah. Um, the, the 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 Dutch uh, battle the battle at Camperdown, which came shortly after uh, Saint Vincent, it, it was really the other battle at that time which which reassured the public at home that yes we we still we still the top naval power and and yet Camperdown is barely mentioned in in many of the books uh, and yet it was quite an impressive little victory and some people have seen in it the shadows of Trafalgar which came, of course, much later and used some of the same ideas. So, yeah, there was a, there was a string of victories, but the gets to a point where you're winning so many times uh, that, that it, you assume it's going to happen. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, that was the case certainly after Trafalgar. There was a, there was a, a defeatism in the, in the enemy began to set in after Trafalgar. You get the feeling they don't, the, the, the opposing fleets really don't want a major battle anymore with the British. So, um, so, so there is a slight uh, change of tempo at that point. But no, it was uh, it was well contested and often uh, as much in single ship actions as in the great battles. You see some uh, some astonishing uh, performances among the captains, uh, frigate captains, uh, uh, as well as the as the great the great uh, um, captains and admirals who, who commanded the ships of the line. It was. Yeah. Uh, I think 1797 is a particularly important year as well. So, you know, here we are focusing on St. Vincent. We've mentioned Camperdown. These are two great naval victories. But this is, it's the same year of the terrible mutinies at the Nor and at Spithead. Yes. So there's there's a, there's definitely a, a kind of at least two significant narratives going on yes. with the Navy. It's rotten, basically, at yes. the core, but it can still produce these results. Yes, that's right. Um, it, it, it is a strange, a strange situation. And... Uh, uh, one that's quite uh, quite dramatic. I think the best the best best officers were aware of the difficulties in the lower deck, 
but um, you do get your martinets and you do get some some uh, some very poor commanders and you see them in every battle don't you uh, commanders who don't seem to have the drive or the initiative or even the personalities to command ships properly they were called rotten ships in the day weren't they because uh, uh, the discipline began to go um, but yeah it, it is it's a double face isn't it you know, um, these great victories and the triumphs and, and the public image of the jolly tar. Uh, and then on the other side of it, the hard life at sea, the, the, the severe discipline and sometimes the sheer brutality and cruelty of some of the officers. Yeah. And yet amongst all of this, you have this, this magnificent victory in, in 1797. So, I mean, last question, John. Why, why, why does the battle matter? Well, it, it mattered at the time because, as I say, it, it lifted Britain's spirits at a time when they were literally on the floor. It, it certainly mattered there. It also unleashed, uh, um, it, it unveiled more naval heroes, didn't it? St. St. Jarvis himself, I mean, he was made an earl, he became Earl St. Vincent, and he became a, a massively reassuring figure for the British public. He, he, he never really lost his reputation as one of the premier men in the service and somebody who was a, one of the wooden walls of England. But most of all, of course, there was Nelson. He created the golden boy of the Royal Navy. Them, uh, who were ultimately people were really looking upon as the shield of the country. So it was an amazing victory. And when you look at it and you look at all the incidents in it, Nelson's wearing out of line and, and, and acting on, completely uh, uh, on his own hog. And these dramatic boarding episodes, these were some of the most uh, uh, legendary uh, and dramatic images of the Royal Navy. You could you could sell them anywhere, couldn't you? And and if you look at um, a lot of the other battles, although they may, may have been bigger and more lethal, they don't turn up any more dramatic images than than that of Nelson boarding his two ships from his battered seventy four. I mean, that was almost a defining image of what what the navy aspired to. It was the ultimate picture of naval heroism. And I think it it was remembered for that reason. Yeah. That's how it appears on all the Tolby jugs and uh, some other prints. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. Well thank you so much for talking to me today, John. I really appreciate it. Well Let's hope uh, something comes out of it, and uh, I, I wish you well with the venture. You look <laughs> after yourself as well in these difficult times. Will do. Thank you so much. Yeah. Okay, Sam. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The second person you will hear from now is the excellent Marianne Chisnick. Marianne trained and practised as a lawyer in Germany before researching aspects of Nelson's life, image and iconography at the University of Edinburgh. A leading Nelson scholar, she's published on a wide range of subjects relating to Nelson, including the book Horatio Nelson, A Controversial Hero in 2005, and Admiral Nelson's Tactics at the Battle of Trafalgar in History in October 2004. She's also the author of the Navy Records Society's latest volume, Nelson's Letters to Lady Hamilton and Related Documents. Uh, if you haven't heard of the Navy Records Society, do please check them out. They have a great online presence at navyrecords.org.uk. As a historian, Marianne has been particularly adept at revealing how the real man has been obscured distorted and misunderstood by those for whom the image of Nelson was more important than the reality and she's renowned for her fresh approaches to the study of Nelson. Here she is. Marianne, St Vincent really is a fascinating battle. Um, what do you think is the most, the most important themes that come out of it in relation to Nelson? Clearly his independent action regarding veering out of the line to attack, well, at first one Spanish ship, which turned out to be two Spanish ships. Yeah. Um, to what extent do you think he was really breaking the rules? Or do you think he was he was operating within the spirit of them and that was OK? That's a big question on which uh, the opinions vary. Um, Apparently, regarding the result, uh, St. Vincent, his superior, was happy with, with the outcome as it was a success. But he may also have been happy with it because it um, coincided what he really had wanted to be done, but couldn't um, get across or convey to his subordinates because the flag system just didn't uh, enable him to um, put his message as clearly as he would have liked to. But this is, um, this is imposing our ideas on what he may have wanted Nelson to or any of his captains to do um, on what he may have really thought. And what is more important than what St. Vincent may have wanted is what Nelson actually did. And um, that was fairly independent. There is a suggestion that St. Vincent may have tried to signal exactly that, but um, the flag signals which he supposedly sent out were not received on Nelson's ship, so Nelson could have just had a kind of imaginative link to St. Vincent. He couldn't have received a real message, and he clearly um, acted independently on his own accord, and that was quite an achievement to have done, not only because it shows that he judged the situation rightly, but also 
because he um, he challenged what all his um, fellow captains did, which was just staying in line, which was the straightforward order they had received. And um, so that's quite daring and shows a lot of judgment. Do you think history would have judged it all differently? Well, I'm sure it would have done it. Had, had Nelson's attack failed, do you think he would have got in trouble for doing what he did? That's difficult to say. And of course, we, we can't change history and shouldn't make too many suggestions about what would have been. But I can't imagine him having been feted in any way if he hadn't succeeded. But luck was yeah. in, in the way as well for his yeah. success, for the second ship to collide into the first which he had attacked. I suppose there's a danger that so many people look back at Nelson's story and see him as a man who took initiative, who was a natural leader. There is a danger here that we are reading back into the past something that we want to see. Is, the, is, there, is there really enough evidence that he was as impressive as we believe him to be? Well, whether we think that's impressive is another matter, but he clearly was independent-minded and he had shown that before and he wasn't very afraid of the consequences. He had even got himself into serious trouble in the West Indies by being independent-minded, to put it positively, or quite disobedient to his superior's orders, to put it more bluntly. So um, there was uh, clearly an independent-mindedness about what he did in crucial circumstances, which were quite a challenge to judge for his fellow officers as well, as we can see at St. Vincent, because he, he was the only one who did it and then was followed, I think, by Collingwood. Yeah. Our understanding of what happened at St. Vincent is so clearly coloured by Nelson's own description of the events. It's an unusual battle in that respect, isn't it? Because usually... The most detailed account will come from the, the commander-in-chief. But in this account, St. Vincent Jarvis, I mean, he barely says anything at all. So everything we know really comes from Nelson's own hand. Um, I suppose we should be a bit, a bit careful. Uh, no, that's not quite true. Um, well, St. Vincent did not mention Nelson's part in the battle. That is true. And he may have had his reasons because um, other admirals had been in trouble for with their captains for having... Um, preferred one above the other in their reports. So that's probably why he stayed neutral. But he clearly uh, acknowledged what Nelson did and uh, appreciated him, which is very much shown in what he did for him after the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. So he really acknowledged what he had done. So it wasn't only Nelson himself. And there was also, um, I think, at least two more reports about Nelson's actions, one by Colonel Drinkwater, which I think who I think was on board Nelson's ship at the time and who was an eyewitness of the battle. And um, another one whose name I've just forgotten, just escapes me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not only Nelson. Not only Nelson. OK, that's an important point. Um, but I suppose what is clear is that the, the role that Nelson played at Cape St Vincent uh, did contribute massively to him becoming well-known and famous. Um, how, how did that process happen? Well, not uh, straightforwardly. He himself was pretty disappointed at not having been 
sufficiently acknowledged for what he had done at the time. Uh, his own account wasn't widely read. Colonel Drinkwater's account, or he called it a narrative, um, was, um, I think even the, the, the copies were even destroyed because they were regarded unsaleable. Nobody was interested in it. Uh, so the um, uh, the account of the story of the battle wasn't an immediate wasn't of immediate interest to the public. Although Nelson, as I now think, very cleverly uh, tried to um, make a reference to the glorious first of June, which had been fought three years earlier, by calling his uh, his battle, if I may say so, so the Battle of Cape St Vincent, the Battle of the Glorious St Valentine's Day. So he related to the glorious 1st of June and wanted to have some glory for himself. But he didn't succeed immediately. It was rather an indirect effect that some people had somehow noticed his account or Colonel Drinkwater's account. First memorabilia appeared. And then when he really became famous, after the Battle of the Nile, of course, they had something to relate to relate back to. He wasn't completely unknown. That was, I think, the the greatest effect of his part in the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, rather than the battle itself at the time. Yeah. How did Nelson's newfound fame after the Battle of Cape St. Vincent affect his life, do you think? Um, that is difficult to say. At first, um, I'm pretty sure he was very disappointed at the lack of acknowledgement that he received by his superior and by the public. Um, but then it had a major indirect effect on his future career by um, opening up career paths to him, particularly thanks to St. Vincent. It was entirely due to St. Vincent that he got the command of the Mediterranean Squadron in um, 1798, so just a year after he'd lost his arm, a bit more, or about a year after the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. Um, that, I think, wouldn't have happened, I'm sure, wouldn't have happened without St. Vincent. And St. Vincent clearly knew what he had in Nelson, thanks to the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, in part at least. Yeah. So he's acquired himself a very powerful patron who then goes on to influence his career. Puts it very precisely. Yeah. That's it, a patron. He gained a patron. What does this incident tell us about Nelson's character, do you think? He was a very active and driven person. Um, he wasn't waiting for things to happen. He wanted to have an impact on what was going on. Yeah, and I, I wanted to take control of 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 that process as well i i it, it's interesting the way that things happen but then he he he's so conscious of of like a historian he's conscious of the story of what he's done isn't he we must be careful not to single him out more than he would have singled himself out himself um he very much acknowledged his subordinates contribution to his successes he always did that and also in the case of the battle of cape st vincent so he was aware that it wasn't only him who did all these things and achieved the successes he took the decisive decisions but in order to execute them he was very much dependent on other people and he acknowledged the support he received what about the competition from other captains of his uh, experience or age group? 
Um, is it fair to see him as someone who's deliberately clambering on top of other people to rise to the top? Or do you think he he was uh, a very open and uh, a friendly person? I mean, was he was he a kind of a political animal or not? I don't know whether political animal is the right term. Uh, he, he clearly wanted to climb. I don't think um, his um, major aim was to put others down. I wouldn't dare to claim that. I don't think he wanted to do it at the cost of others because he acknowledged them too often, too frequently in different circumstances. But he didn't mind being ahead of them. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't mind at all, I think it's probably, <laughs> it's probably fair to say. Mm. Um, how important is it to see the Battle of Cape St Vincent within the context of other battles that are happening in the 1790s, do you think? I think it's very important. Um, looking back, we see the Battle of the Nile first, but there were more events, um, particularly the Battle of um, the Glorious First of June, which was much more celebrated than the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. So St. Vincent stands out for us, perhaps, because Nelson fought in it so successfully. Um, but at the time, it was not so much um, celebrated uh, as the Battle of the Glorious First of June. So we have to consider that there were others, other admirals and other battles that were celebrated. An important point to end with. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us today, Marin. Well, I do hope you have enjoyed this episode and analysis of the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, but let me remind you to listen to our first episode, which outlines what happened in the battle, and also to our subsequent episode, which is coming up, because that offers an important Spanish perspective of the battle. How can you help? Well, please do follow us on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. Please leave a review on the iTunes website. That's really important. It makes a huge difference. And otherwise, please just sign up to the Society for Nautical Research if you are not already a member. You can do so at snr.org.uk and your subscription fee will go towards publishing the most important maritime history and to preserving our maritime past.